Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, which is lucky number 13 of this podcast, retired corrections lieutenant and sitting judge Charles Gardner joins me in the interrogation room. Prior to sitting behind the bench, Charles spent 25 years with the New York State Department of Corrections. He retired from that agency's training division in Malone, New York, the upstate town where he was born and raised. Through his career, Charles served stints in several medium and maximum security prisons, including the famed Sing Sing and the Clinton Correctional Facility, which is more commonly known by its location, Danamora. He served on the DOC's emergency response team, which is known as CERT, for the listeners that's spelled Charlie Edward Robert Tom, and it's a specialty unit that functions as the corrections equivalent of SWAT. In June of 2015, two convicted killers escaped from the DOC facility in Danamora and a massive prolonged manhunt ensued and captured international attention. Just last month, Charles released his true crime book entitled Danamora, Two Escaped Killers, Three Weeks of Terror, and the Largest Manhunt Ever in New York State. This book details the relevant history of both escapees, the desperate 24-7 search to recover them, and the myriad of factors that allow this terrifying crime to have occurred at all. Thank you, Charles, for joining me in Writers on the Beat today. Gavin, thank you for having us. We we greatly appreciate it. So uh, I don't know if I should call you Charles or Lieutenant, LT, or or your honor. You're a man of many titles these days. Jack of uh, many trades, and uh, (laughs) I'm still still trying to work on all of them, needless to say. Thank you. Charles or Charlie is fine. Fantastic. Well, I appreciate it. Well, since since we're good friends now, I'll I'll go with Charlie, sir. Um, Perfect. I'm I'm reading Danamora right now, and I am really genuinely impressed with this book. Not just as a uh, a writer and veteran cop, but also in looking this from looking at this book and its content from a risk management perspective. um, What do you want readers to know about Danamora? Well, Denimora, again, this, this nonfiction of Denimora has so many different twists and turns, it, it's frightening. Um, we're talking about two dangerous convicted killers. We're talking about a three-way sex scandal involving a um, civilian worker that worked in the prison. We've got a Hollywood-California connection. We've got a daring escape, a tainted crime scene, and a manhunt that takes place in the Adirondack Park, which is an ancient unforgiving wilderness and then we top it off with finger pointing politicians what else could you ask for on a on a wonderful day on a beautiful friday <laughs> yeah you know it's uh, truth really is stranger than fiction and you know if if you were to just try to set out to write this as a fiction you probably wouldn't be able to come up with all of these elements that actually happened it's it's unbelievable uh, we have to agree with you 100% truth in this case is absolutely uh, mind boggling how the story unravels now, the, the book opens with your own experience as a, as a member of the public, a, a citizen and, and, and now retired corrections lieutenant, when news of that prison break became public. Uh, can you talk a bit about what you remember of that first morning? Well, I had received a phone call from a neighbor who uh, actually worked at Clinton Correctional. I had just been recently retired, and uh, of course, that still keeps you in pretty much in the circle. Mm-hmm. And the neighbor was bringing to my attention that, uh, that two of them had uh, wandered away. And um, was I aware of it yet? Yeah. And I had not uh, received notice yet. 
Um, and understand Clinton as a crow flies is approximately 30 to 35 miles from my front door. So uh, without a doubt, uh, you'd have a vested interest in this. Yeah, absolutely. Now, in my experience, and as I'm as I'm reading you detailing um, all of this and uh, parts of the story in Danamora, there's almost never a single cause for any significant crime or tragedy. And uh, personally, I'm I'm a huge fan of Gordon Graham and his recurring phrase that predictable is preventable. What are some of the problems that led up to this escape and made this um, made this possible? Well, unfortunately, there's a lot of contributing factors. But uh, if we go back as far as nearly two decades, uh, unfortunately, um, the state capitol had succeeded upon closing posts inside New York State's largest maximum security prison, Clinton Correctional. Those post closures resulted in a kink in the armor in that particular mm -hmm. facility. Uh, those post closures included, but were not limited to, wall towers. Uh, mm -hmm. On the uh, early morning hours of the escape <clears throat> of the uh, dozen wall towers that surrounded that facility, six of them had been uh, unmanned and mothballed for nearly two decades prior to the escape. Wow. Same problem with, yeah, I know. Wow, I was right. Prior, uh, also uh, prior to the escape for, again, uh, in the window of a two-decade uh, window, um, subterranean tunnel inspections had been discontinued. Again, as a cost-saving measure uh, come up with by uh, corrections leadership. Their theory was um, maintenance workers were in those subterranean tunnels doing maintenance. If there were any breaches of security, they would quickly pick up on it. And so uh, positions that were once held by correctional staff were no longer filled. And um, in, in the premise of let's uh, do more with less. And uh, again, uh, opening up another uh, potential uh, kink in the armor of the uh, New York State's largest maximum security prison. You know, that, that last one seems uh, a lot to me like, you know, we don't need to maintain the undercarriage or the transmission of our vehicle because when the guy changes the tires, he'll surely notice if the transmission's missing. Like, you know, it's, those it's the same premise. With each other. It's the yeah. same premise. Uh, exactly. You nailed it. Um, now, on the, uh, on the on the cop side of the world, and correct me if things are, are different on the correction side of the wall, but you know, the rank and file generally is, you know, the officers, corporals, FTOs, and sergeants, and the lieutenants where, where you retired at the, at the end of that 25 years are, are the bottom rung of the uh, management or administration. And for me, that means lieutenant postings are kind of the first chance that most people have to better and more directly influence policy, procedure, budgets, all those types of things. Uh, a lot more paper, a lot more planning, fewer fisticuffs. I also think it's the position that everyone in our profession thinks, I'm going to do things differently when I'm wearing those bars. Uh, oftentimes, I think without fully realizing all the obstacles that prevent changing those upper echelons of law enforcement organizations, whether it's a police department, a, a correctional institution, or a sheriff's office. Um, can you help readers understand some of the realities um, that you had and other people in your position have had in trying to turn a particular massive ship in a new direction? Well, not stopping at the uh, at the level of the lieutenant um unfortunately our organization just like any other uh, law enforcement organization out there is a paramilitary organization we, we have the uh, chain of command but let's move up above those lieutenants and, and move into the administrators at this particular facility and in this particular case all facilities in new york state 
all administrators in New York State's facilities answer to people in Albany. And unfortunately, the leadership in Albany, a lot of them have wonderful experience running jails, but unfortunately, a lot of them are political appointees that have absolutely no concept whatsoever. Mm. In this particular case of uh, Denimora, um, there was an incident weeks prior that the facility management had attempted to shut down the facility, lock down the facility, and um, that, that request to Albany managers uh, was not granted. And basically wow. in our business, no, no means no. And so the facility yeah. and management went back to running the facility, uh, even though the answer was no. And uh, within a less than a two-week window, uh, we had two convicted murderers uh, running free. You know, it's um, surprising to me, you know, and it's, you know, part of the things that are never part of the recruiting video. And I think, you know, that really the, the public probably doesn't, um, has some misconception on is that like, kind of like you, you mentioned the uh, oftentimes the administrators, you know, they're not really the ones that are, are having to live out the day-to-day decisions of, of their policies, procedures. And, you know, there's obviously a number of factors that go into making any kind of major decision, but um, in a, my perspective on the law enforcement world, there's a lot of folks at the top that have never been part of the boots on the ground to impact their policy or to enforce their policy. And, you know, it's, uh, especially when it comes to budget time, a lot of those, um, a lot of the things that may be otherwise well-intended or, you know, spending money here to save money there ends up really endangering everyone, you know, a little bit piece at a time, these baby steps until something bad happens. And you've nailed it right there. Yeah. You've absolutely nailed it right there. It's the policies and procedures that have been put in place by assorted bureaucrats that don't have a full understanding on how this system works is putting people at risk eventually. And we'll backtrack. The wall towers being mothballed and closed two decades prior. The subterranean tunnels being that those jobs being closed with the premise that someone with, with maintenance was going to uh, discover uh, any, any kind of um, indiscrepancies or, or problems or breaches in security. You look back to the budget, the correction officer working the very front gate at Clinton Correctional. Again, one single staff member responsible for properly vetting uh, the 1,300 um, people that work in that facility. So in the course of a day, any given day, you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people coming and going from this facility on top of vendors, visitors, and other assorted guests. And you have one person tasked with properly vetting those people. Um, picture that the next time you walk through a TSA line. Oh my How God, many people yeah. properly vet you when you go through TSA to climb on a, on a commercial flight? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's going to just skip across for the next couple of hours to the next near, you know, near city. Um, how, how confident would you feel with the security checkpoint uh, with TSA if there's one person that's properly vetting the hundreds of people that are trying to wiggle through that, uh, that TSA checkpoint? When we all know the reality is there's dozens of people that are working those TSA checkpoints uh, and properly vetting the people. But yet, in New York State's correction facilities, the job description reads that one person is capable of doing that. And we all know the reality of that. That on paper, it looks great. On the people that are creating budgets, it looks wonderful. And the people that are making policy, it looks fantastic. But in reality, it does not work. 
no, not at all. That's that, that's that's terrifying to 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 hear that reality. And I, I think it, you know, unfortunately for me, that it, it reinforces, I guess, some of my own belief that you know the the folks who are kind of the most vulnerable in our society, and you know, some, I guess, ideology aside, I think, you know, when it comes time for the the public to vote on measures to spend their tax dollars on public health, specifically mental health and um, prisons for corrections and for parole probation offices. Those things are so terribly underfunded. And to me, those are two of the areas that we need to be spending the most money on to have a direct positive correlation on our quality of life and the crime rates in our communities. Absolutely. Gavin, it's a simple concept. And unfortunately, when budgets come around, um, politicians don't don't grasp the simple concepts. But cost-cutting measures in building bridges, mm-hmm. or maintaining aircraft, or properly staffing correctional facilities—if you don't do those three things right, yes. they're going to often <laughs> result in catastrophic failure. I mean, yeah. this is a no-brainer. Yeah. But unfortunately, they don't get that. They keep on cutting back. They keep on adding more and more tasks for staff mm-hmm. until it reaches a breaking point. And then when it when we have the catalytic uh, um, the, the failure, the yeah. catastrophic failure, all of a sudden it's the old old crap moment yes. uh, of oh, how did we get here? And and that's the sad reality of this business. Yeah. And then it's time to start, you know, persecuting those responsible or deemed responsible for this failure, right? That one guy who's supposed to vet, you know, 400 people twice per shift in an eight hour shift and do a good job. of it. And, uh, and that's exactly what happened is no one, none of the decision makers, none of the people that made the decision to get us there mm-hmm. were held accountable, but the, the boots on the ground, the mm-hmm. local administrators and the local guys working the gates are working those jobs were chastised for missing whatever it was that they missed. And, and it's just, it, it's just, it's the hand that they were dealt and then and it's pretty sad. And that's why we wrote the book was that I, I just couldn't stand by and just let the people that created this quagmire go unscathed and, and just walk away, just kind of shrugging their shoulders because unfortunately Gavin, as we're chatting right now, mm-hmm. somewhere, Somebody is scratching, clawing, cutting, and digging their way out of a correctional facility while you and I are talking right now because of these breaches in potential security measures. With that, uh, with that motivation, when, when did you decide that this book had to be written? What was the kind of the breaking point? As the story unfolded for the uh, three weeks during this manhunt in my backyard, um, I continued to watch the um, the national media race to the area. I continued to watch the national media report, and I continued to see the the, the, the spin and the falsehoods in, in, in the reporting. And it was a spin. It was a narrative that was being given by leadership mm-hmm. that had created this mess in a in a basic measure to just CYA. And I was just. I, I just couldn't believe that they were not going to take any responsibility for this. Um, and yet they held, they held all the cards. They were the decision makers and policy makers that created this. And yet they were going to walk away unscathed. And then they were going to op- offer up sacrificial lambs. Those being the local um, administrators 
as well as correctional staff. And I just, it, it was such an injust that it had to be addressed. And thus the writing of Dana Morrow. Yeah, and that's part of the, the problem in this whole process to me is the, you know, the public puts so much trust, you know, regardless of what the, the headlines are in, in the news on any given day. The reality is the, the typical member of the public, they put so much trust in us as, as cops, as correction officers, to do the right thing at the right time for the right reasons, which I, I think is the basis of the job. And when someone has the presumed credibility of a title and access to a microphone, they're automatically believed because they're, you know, the chief of or the director of. And um, unfortunately, like you said, the, the guys on the ground, the ones that are, are actually having to try to fulfill their fantasy policies are, are the ones that are, are taking the brunt of the punishment. And I, in my own experience, um, or rather based on my own experience, I should say, I, I would expect there was a lot of advice and skepticism from your colleagues and peers um, from both sides telling you, you know, that the failings need to be known and fixed. And also those who wanted to keep everything in-house and let the DOC quietly make their own improvements without public scrutiny. How did you navigate those competing conversations or did they even happen? Well, unfortunately they didn't happen. Um, Right now, New York state is again uh, going down that ugly road of, well, our numbers look really wonderful and our population of inmate population is currently down. So we're going to close more correctional facilities and nothing could be further from the truth. But what's happened is the policymakers have manipulated the numbers once again to give the public a false sense of security. They've changed the laws so that they're putting these convicted felons back out onto the streets quicker They've changed the way parole handles them. But what's happening is as quick as they're putting these convicted felons back out on the street on parole, they're, they're coming right back in. It's a rotating door. Mm-hmm. The facilities, the laws were changed. So facilities that were normally constructed to hold 750 inmates are currently housing 1,700 inmates. So the infrastructure is not capable of handling the amount of people that are there. Bedding and um, cubicle space or cell space that was designed for one man now has two men living in it. So what they've, the, the policymakers have done is they've changed and manipulated the laws so that you can put more people in smaller spaces and you're expecting great results. And all it's doing is it's making it more dangerous for not only the inmate population, but the staff that works in those facilities and the potential there for, again, a catastrophic failure. As we talked about earlier, places where you don't skimp, infrastructure, building yeah. bridges, yeah. airplane maintenance, and correctional facility staffing. And unfortunately, they continue to do the same thing. And right now, New York State is talking about closing two or possibly three correctional facilities because of the numbers game that they continue to play. You know, you bring up the the, uh, the parole numbers. The um, for the, the benefit of the audience, um, just a couple of vocabulary points for your your writing and, and your your thought process about all this. So, um, when somebody gets convicted, and this is just generally across the board, um, there may be some some slight variance by by state laws or regional laws, um, but generally speaking, somebody gets convicted of a crime, and they get probation. Um, probation is generally served in lieu of a prison sentence or jail sentence, and you have a set of rules you have to abide by. 
Um, most folks that get put on probation are either, you know, first-time offenders, nonviolent offenses. Um, it's an alternative to incarceration. And generally, probation is a hard thing for most folks to complete. The ones who truly should be on probation have no trouble with it because they don't reoffend. Um, but the probation rules for uh, legit criminals are very difficult to comply with um, because they can't be out late at night. A lot of times they can't, you know, imbibe drugs or alcohol. They can't hang out with felons. Um, then people, you know, go to prison. Um, if they get released early from prison, depending on the circumstances, they're often put on parole. Um, parole is just like probation, but at the end of a sentence. And it's also incredibly difficult to live with. Uh, most folks, the term a lot of guys out West use is killing their number that they would rather stay in prison for the full five years than get out after three years and still have two years of parole to serve because they know they can't live up to parole and they're just going to come back. So um, when folks do end up coming out on parole, a lot of times they do get recycled. And in, in, in my experience, working with the guys on the street side of it, because they can't stay off the alcohol, the drugs, they can't hang out. You know, they come back to the same neighborhood where they reoffended or where they grew up as a criminal. And then they end up, you know, in this revolving door, like you talked about, just kind of going right back in. Correct. Now, Correct. from um, from your writing, it, it seems really obvious to me that this isn't your first barbecue. Um, who was your, <laughs> <laughs> who, who was your first writing mentor, um, and, and when did you start writing? Well, I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but this is actually my first uh, my first book. Oh, well done. The, uh, it's very, yeah. very well written. Very, you know, my, it, it reads much better than my first book I ever wrote. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, no, we, uh, we, put, we put a lot of work into it. Yeah. Um, we built the book the way I like to see books built. Um, we, we had a thousand pictures available. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, we, we had uh, 16 pages of photos that we ended up putting in this. I, I like short chapters. Uh, I, I know what I like to and how I like to read uh, different books. And that's how I built and designed this book. And uh, we, our reviews have been phenomenal. Mm -hmm. our, um, uh, the public has, has, has greeted us wonderfully, all of our different venues that we continue to go to. Uh, it's been a lot of fun, needless to say. And I was passionate about the subject. And I brought the insider's point of view. Uh, again, it was a perfect storm. This escape happened in my backyard, and the end result ended in my front yard. Um, as well, it was an industry that I had worked for a quarter of a century. Now, in between that that escape in your backyard, moving over to the recovery in your front yard, what was it like for you and your family to live through those 23 days in between? It was um, it was quite different. Um, just and not to ruin what you're going to find in the book, but perfect examples. Moving, we're in rural northern New York. Moving from one point to another is usually a 15-20 minute task. Uh, to go to the post office, to get fuel, to uh, go to the grocery store, the 15 to 20 minute task would turn into an hour and 15 minutes because you would have four or five roadblocks to go through. Um, conversations often held at the roadblocks um, understand the fact that everyone was armed because. Mm -hmm everybody owns a weapon where I'm from anyway. Um, and the conversations between law enforcement and the individual driving the vehicle, uh, as law enforcement would look inside the vehicle and they'd see a loaded shotgun sitting on the front seat. And the conversation would be, how many shells do you have in the uh, shotgun? And the occupant of the vehicle would say, well, three. And law enforcement's comment would be, it'll hold five. 
So, that is not what well, I was expecting to be the yeah. line there. <laughs> but but the bird hunters can appreciate from northern yes. New York because we have to yes. put plugs in our shotgun when we duck hunt or bird hunt to be legal. And unfortunately, those folks weren't taking the plugs out, and law enforcement was trying to bring them up to speed to the fact that boys and girls, you can take the plugs out. This is a whole different animal. Uh, you know, this is this is a hell of a, a thing that's unfolding in your neighborhood. But yeah. mail going into um, neighborhoods, uh, postal service could not deliver into particular neighborhoods for two and three days while areas were completely uh, shut down because all of a sudden they moved into a new perimeter search. Um, families wouldn't go to their beds to sleep at night. They would gather in a living room um, all night long with every light on in the house, every outside light on, um, and generator-powered um, light towers in their front yards with law enforcement wandering up and down the road. Um, and people would sleep in their living room uh, while mom or dad was on guard. I mean, it was, it was a horrifying time for a lot of local residents that did not know what to expect next out of this, this terrible event. Wow. Uh, the... Um... With your connection to to the Department of Corrections, to DOC, I would expect there's still a, a lot of information that you needed and didn't have when this started. What did your research project process look like to get this project completed? Our research was as intense as you could have possibly uh, thought. Um, with regards to the research on the area, lived there for 60 years so that was pretty easy with uh, as far as the research with the, how the department of corrections worked again quarter of a century with the department that part was easy so basically what i was left with the task of doing the research on the two convicted uh, killers and that was easily accessible um as a result of whether i foiled the information or uh, however i got that um but basically being a local I was able to move around and just simply talk to the local residents because locals will talk to a local sure. and get all the assorted stories that you're going to find in Denimora. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't talk to a, a reporter because they didn't know them and they weren't willing to give up information uh, to, to a stranger. But to talk to a local, the information was free flowing. Um, and being a local and being in the position that I was in as far as previous law enforcement, I was able to talk to everyone and anyone uh, easily. And the stories were out there. All you had to do was listen to them and document. And that's what we did. Now, what are some of the realities of, uh, of prison life that might still surprise the public? Maybe something that you wish the public better understood about your profession? The frightening reality of prison life is... The, inside the, the walls of prison, you will find everything that you will find outside on the streets. You'll find housing units that act as housing. You'll find infirmaries that act as your local hospital. Optical dental uh, procedures are performed uh, in-house or they're taken out. Uh, just like if you needed optical or dental procedures. Um, there's churches, there's workout facilities, which is like your local gym. Everything that you can find on the outside of those walls is found on the inside. The frightening thing, and, and the thing that I found that is sometimes troubling to the public, is the special privileges. The special privileges that inmate Matt and inmate Sweat would find themselves in, in the honor block. 
One is convicted of killing a police officer. <clears throat> the other one had two murders to his credit. And yet they had special privileges of extended hours outside of their cells. Um, they had you know, color televisions in their cells. They had everything that we had available. But it's the concept of special privileges while, while in prison. And one can only take a step back and just say, but what are the special privileges of their victims? The deputy sheriff by the name of Tarcia from Broome County, who's dead now because of the actions of David Sweat and his co-defendants, what special privileges do those people get? What special privileges does Mr. Rickerson and his family members get? when he was a victim and taken for 27 hours cross country and beaten repeatedly and held captive in the trunk of a vehicle. And then finally his neck was snapped. His body was discarded along the Niagara river and then cut with a hacksaw and thrown into the Niagara river. What special privileges did Mr. Rickerson's family get? And for me, I, I find that the special privileges is a ridiculous concept mm -hmm. that was at Clinton Correctional at the time of, and is still at Clinton Correctional uh, years afterwards. And I find that offensive to the victims. I don't begrudge the inmate population having whatever it is that they have going for them with regards to the commissaries, the recreational facilities, the Supreme Medical Facilities. Uh, I don't have a problem with any of that because that's the task that we've taken on when we incarcerate these individuals. But the special privileges are ridiculous. Now, the, talking about, you know, kind of on this, this topic in, in reforms or making changes, um, for the, the, the benefit of the audience, the, there's a concept on action and reaction called, uh, we use the acronym OODA, uh, O-O-D-A, it's uh, observe, orient, decide, and act. And it's the process psychologically that a person goes through when they see a threat or information. Um, they see it, they recognize it, then they decide how they're going to act, and then they finally have to act on it. Um, it's been four years since, almost four years, since this escape. Um, what do you know of any reforms that have been instituted since then with you know, have the institutions having had four years to get their OODA loop right. <laughs> the pathetic thing is life for the inmate population hasn't changed a bit. Mm. But now currently staffed life has changed immensely. Currently staff entering New York State Correctional Facilities have to utilize what's known as the Tilly Tote, affectionately referred to as the Tilly Tote because the seamstress that was the one introducing the contraband that resulting in this escape. Her, her nickname was Tilly. The Tilly tote is a clear mm -hmm. through plastic container that makes it so that when you walk into the facility, whether you're a male or a female staff member, that everything and anything that you bring into that facility is exposed to the public as well as to the inmate population. So if you're a female or a male and you're on a particular medication mm -hmm. or if you have particular things in your you know, your, your tilly tote, it's, it's there for the whole world to see. You've lost all of your privacy because wow. you work in a New York state correctional facility. Um, and the list goes on, but as far as any kind of changes, there's still only one officer working the main gate at Clinton correctional facility, vetting hundreds of staff members as they come and go. But yet their job description still reads the same 
that if there's any kind of failure, it's going to be your fault. And there's just no way that these staff members can be complying with their directives and their policies set forth by pencil-pushing people in Albany out of the state capitol who have no concept as to what the job involves. And that's the sad thing. As we said earlier, right now, somewhere, some inmate is scratching, chipping, cutting, and digging his way out of the facility right now. And, and they're just not putting the resources out there to prevent this. And that's the sad reality of this. Now, just like Dana Mora in the other, the other true crimes that I've, um, that I've read and uh, follow uh, on TV and Netflix, and they're almost universally serve as a cautionary tale, right? Getting back to Gordon Graham about, you know, predictable is preventable. And, most mm-hmm. of the time, in hindsight, when you look at these um, at these terrible things, there's almost always this all all, all these things that should have warned people um, that this was coming. And uh, true crime fans, um, to me, are, are among the most avid and insatiable readers I've ever met. Um, I would think that the early success of this book would be pretty intoxicating and and, and tempting as a writer. Um, do you have another project on the horizon, another true crime that, that you're looking at um, exposing? We, we do. We actually have uh, two different projects that we're looking at right now. Um, so we're not done yet. Okay. <laughs> sounds like, sounds you, like they're under like wraps. The I won't, I won't push you. Yeah. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, we'll just have to look forward to it then. Um, on a little bit of a, a lighter note, uh, who are your favorite fictional investigators whenever you're looking to escape in, in books, TV, and film? Oh, my goodness. Oh, I have so many different outlets. But um, I'll tell you, James Patterson, I guess, is probably by far um, one of the most phenomenal writers out there. Uh, I have an opportunity to uh, to look at his works, and I'm just at, at complete amazement. Um, I guess we all have idols in this world. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. I, I've uh, long heard that you know you're not supposed to. Uh, you never want to meet your heroes, um, but you know yeah, he's, it's all good. <laughs> he's he's somebody that I I would uh, I would risk meeting. I, I think that would be me, you and me both. It'd, yeah. It'd be worth it. <laughs> You know, um, mean both, but the um, Gavin, the, the the true heroes that mm-hmm. I have the opportunity to meet on a regular basis um, are the men and women that do this job every day of the week. Those are the true heroes, and and those are the heroes that we actually dedicated this uh, this book to. Uh, the men and women, the boots on the ground, those are without a doubt the unsung heroes on a daily basis, and uh, without a doubt, those are my those are my true idols, without a doubt. Yeah, that the acknowledgement that you put at the at the front of your book, I, I'm glad you, you you brought that up because I totally forgot to mention it. When when I opened the book and um and got to the that page, that was um so sincere and so genuinely worded. I I felt better about my life as a cop just reading what you had to thank for you know all of us in the profession and and you know I think that um you know for a lot of us, you know, the people that we look up to the most are end up being the, the guys that are on the shift with us and the work for us and above us. And, you know, it's, um, a lot of, a lot of heroism and a lot of wonderful things that the, the public will never get the benefit of knowing occurs on a daily basis in 
you know, in the prisons and in the station houses that are in their own neighborhoods and in their own cities. You know, it's, it's truly unsung. Yes. Yeah. It happens every day and we never hear about it. All we ever hear about is the silly stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. You're yeah, absolutely it's, right. That's it's, why Denimora is dedicated to, uh, to the, the men and women and the boots on the ground without a doubt. Now the, um, I, I save this one, uh, for, near the, the end of every one of my interviews, just, uh, it's been kind of a fun little, uh, uh, fun little litmus test here, but, uh, God forbid it should happen, Charles, but if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, what investigation or, or fictional investigator or team would you want to work your case? <laughs> Keeping in mind your James Patterson answer that'll put this to the test. <laughs> I'll take any one of those organizations out there because there's no <laughs> doubt in my mind that um, they're, they're, again, they're, they're the true heroes. I, I've, I've had the privilege of traveling all over this country. I've had the privilege of traveling outside of country. And the dedication that I see from the law enforcement community is second to none across this nation as well as uh, across this country. Um, and uh, I wouldn't have a problem with any of them being at that uh, at potential crime scene <laughs> oh my goodness where can uh, fans connect with you and with your new release Danamora so Danamora is available anywhere books are sold um, Amazon without a doubt if you want to go through the uh, uh, the download for the Kindle version uh, it's also available on audiobook uh, Danamora by Charles A. Gardner um, uh, again anywhere books are sold um, is uh, is where you can find us and you can join us on Charles A. Gardner um, on our website and uh, join us on Facebook for the conversations. Uh, needless to say, as you can tell, I'm a pretty shy guy. So I've got something <laughs> to say that you'll never, you'll yes. never leave the room wondering how I was thinking. <laughs> Perfect. I, I greatly, uh, greatly appreciate you coming on and spending some time with us today, Charlie. Uh, you've been listening to writers on the beat where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been true crime author, retired correctional lieutenant, and sitting judge Charles A. Gardner. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.